comes from Judges chapter 8, beginning at verse 22. The Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you've saved us out of the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And he said, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was the custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. They answered, we'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment, and each man threw a ring from his plunder into it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, not counting the ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, or the chains that were on their camels' necks. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in opera his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshipping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land enjoyed peace for 40 years. Jeroboam, son of Joash, went back home to live. He had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. His concubine, who lived in Shechem, also bore him a son, whom he named Abimelech. Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in opera of the Abizarites. And no sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Bereth as their god and did not remember the Lord their god who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They also failed to show kindness to the family of Jeroboam as Gideon for all the good things he had done for them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Eleanor, for that. Well, then, we've reached the conclusion of our Sunday sermon series, Gideon Loving God and Living His Adventure. And what an adventure it's been. We've been in caves. We've been in a wine press. We've torn down idols and rebuilt an altar to the Lord. We've laid a fleece. And we've gathered by the river. And today, we see that the people of Israel forget someone very important to them and on the subject of forgetting I've got a joke for you I always start with a joke I know but uh, this is one of my favorite church jokes you may well have heard it or you may well have uh, heard it and uh, forgotten part of it but one Saturday a vicar had an appointment to see someone at their home when he called round it was obvious that someone was in was home no one came to the door even though he knocked several times finally he took out his card and he wrote on the back, sorry, you forgot our appointment. And then he wrote Revelation 3.20, and he posted it through the door. The next day, as he was walking to the back of the church, he found his card in the collection plate. Below his message was the note, sorry, I forgot our appointment. 
and then underneath Genesis 3.10. Well, Genesis, Revelation 3.20 says this, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And Genesis 3.10 reads, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. <laughs> Did you keep up with that? Good. Well done. You're more awake than you look. I mean, right, so I know from the stories you're telling me that the journey with Gideon has been a huge encouragement to our church community. I've had quite a number of emails and conversations from people and with people. And it was an encouragement to the people of Israel in Gideon's day. It was also a challenge. Back then, despite Israel's initial failings and their disinterest towards the Lord, God stood by his people. And he told them how they could put their relationship right with him and how he called them to stand against their enemies. And he reassured them in their fear. And he led them to victory and freedom from the years of horrific oppression. And in today's scene from Scripture, we join the aftermath of the great victory when the Israelite army of just 300 overcame the Midianite army of thousands thanks to God's help. And it was now that the dust was settling the enormity of recent events was sinking in and a new way of life was emerging. Surely now, the relationship between God and his people was back on track for good. After all that God had done for them, surely now they wouldn't forget him. But unfortunately, as we heard, the story of God's people goes full circle as they return to their idolatrous ways. They struggle to maintain a healthy trusting relationship with God. And again this morning we see that this scene from Gideon's adventure holds a number of key issues which have much to say to us and the whole of God's church. And we're going to look at two together this morning, two key issues. Firstly, the people forgot the Lord by offering Gideon the throne. They forgot the Lord by offering Gideon the throne. The people must have been so grateful for Gideon's leadership that they offered him the chance to be king. You can understand the euphoria. These days, anyone who achieves anything great is immediately thought of as a potential knight or dame. One journalist wrote last year that a couple of Olympic gold medals all but guarantees you a knighthood. It's true, isn't it? And it was similar for Gideon. The people saw him as their great deliverer, the one who'd led them from the caves of fear to an historic victory over their great enemy. And so naturally, they want to reward him. But more is going on here. The people aren't simply wanting to recognize the greatness of their esteemed leader. I wonder if you can remember playing tag or tig on the school playground. Can you remember that? chasing after people and, and just tagging them or whatever, and then, you're it. Can you remember that? You're it. No, no, I'm not it. You're it. You didn't touch me. Can you remember that? You didn't touch me properly. You're it. Nobody wanted to be it. Well, that's what's going on here. Israel wanted to make Gideon their leader. They wanted him to be it. They wanted to distance themselves from God and what he expected of them. They wanted to see Gideon 
carrying on doing the things they couldn't bring themselves to do. If God is their ruler, then much, then much will be asked of them. But if Gideon is their ruler, then maybe there would be some wriggle room. Let's not forget that these people who wanted Gideon now crowned king were the same people who wanted him dead some time earlier for cutting down, chopping down the Asherah pole and demolishing Baal's altar. But the moment things take a turn for the better, no criticism, no hateful intentions can be heard. It suited the people to offer the throne to Gideon now. They expected Gideon to continue making up the difference for their lack of vision, their lack of courage, and their lack of commitment. They wanted to see Gideon putting in the hard yards so that they could just sit back and reap the rewards. How often do we, do you and I, expect from others what we're not prepared to give ourselves? Whether that's from leaders or colleagues at work or friends or maybe church staff members in our church community, ministry teams or even the PCC. How much do we make demands on others to help maintain a healthy relationship with God? Something that we are not prepared to do. To what extent do we expect others to serve God on our behalf? Someone else will pray for that person or visit that person or keep me informed with all the news I need or lead the prayers or cook the meal at Messy Church or organize the Soul Survivor Youth Camp. I remember seeing this attitude at an early age, and it, I remember it struck me, and it's made a lasting uh, impression for me. At primary school, in year six, that's the last year at primary school, we each had to take it in turns to bring in a record or a cassette of our favorite music and then talk about it. And when it was my good friend Paul's turn, just before the music lesson, he went to his bag in the cloakroom, and I was with him, I went with him, and he reached in his bag, and there was no cassette there. And immediately he was really cross and he started ranting on about his mum. My mum didn't put this cassette in this bag, he said. It's my mum's fault, my stupid mum, he said. And I remember telling him, Paul, it's your music lesson, it's your bag, it's your music, it's your responsibility. But he didn't like it. Expecting others to take responsibility for ourselves is a trap we can all fall into. Like Israel, we like to see someone else on the throne, someone else being it, other than ourselves. Someone who can lead the vision of things, the prayer, the planning, the caring. Someone who will do what we would like to see happen without much effort on our part. But notice that the offer of the throne is turned down by Gideon. It's a remarkable act of humility on his part, which is swiftly followed by an act of great... Um, well, the opposite, actually. <laughs> Great selfishness when he asked for all that uh, jewellery and gold and uh, finery. But Gideon is definite. I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. Instead, he tells the people that the Lord will rule over you. The Lord is their king. How ironic, then, that the people forget their true deliverer, their true king and ruler, and instead expect too much from Gideon. There's no doubt that God raises up leaders to direct, guide, inspire, challenge, and call people into his plans. But ultimately, here is a warning for us, not to expect them to do too much for us. The Lord is our deliverer and our ruler, and each of us should not expect anyone 
to take responsibility for our relationship with him. If that was the first issue, then the second one is this. The people forgot the calling God had given them. Through Gideon, God called his people Israel to take ground, to move out from their places of fear and face up to their enemies to bring freedom from oppression. And with God's help, this is exactly what happened. It might not have happened in the way that they expected it to, but nevertheless, it happened. And then they stopped doing it. They stopped taking ground. You often see this in an adventure. Uh, in a fictional adventure, you can see that too. You can see it in Lord of the Rings, where they, the main characters set off on an adventure to defeat their enemy, to take ground, to move into some kind of mission that they've been given. And then along the way, they forget what it's all about. And they lose their way. You can see that in uh, Narnia, in that, the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where the children there in Narnia and they're almost committed then to trying to overcome the, uh, the, the, the winter and to see Aslan return to the throne and that they're in the beaver's house and for a few minutes they lose sight of what it's all about and then it's the, the loss of Edmund Edmund has, has uh, sneaked off hasn't he, snuck off, whatever and they suddenly realise that they are in a mission they, they're called back in that moment to their task in hand and the same happened for Israel they stopped taking ground they lost track of the task that God had given them you read chapter 9 of Judges and you'll see that the time Israel was free from oppression was short-lived enemies creep back into the scene the people forgot what God had done and forgot to trust him Israel forgot that their God wanted them to move out of their comfortable caves to take ground and to bring freedom to the people. In what ways have we, Christchurch, forgotten God's call to move out of our comfortable cave, the four walls of our building, to take ground from our enemy Satan and bring freedom from oppression? In what ways have we slipped into an insular way of being church, gathering in safety, enjoying being met by God in worship and teaching and prayer, and yet avoiding his call to be sent. Of course, it's right to make gathering for worship a priority, but that's only part of God's calling for his people. Somehow we've given one another the idea that the church's priority is simply to come together to worship, especially on a Sunday. But we gather to worship to be sent, to gather to worship to be sent, to gather to worship to be sent. I could go on forever, but because that's what it is. We gather to worship, to be sent, to bring freedom in our families, our schools, our offices, our hospitals, our factories, and our communities. We don't just worship to enjoy God and time with Jesus. True worship always, always, always has consequences. It sends us into every part of our lives to take ground for God by sharing the love he pours into our lives. We need to acknowledge in our own lives and in our church life, and I encourage us to do this, to see where we've forgotten God's calling to take ground, where we've forgotten to join in with his mission of love to the world. Just before Jesus ascended into heaven, he gave a commission to all his followers. Matthew records the event right at the end of his gospel. He tells us that on the mountain where Jesus told them to go, 
His disciples worshipped him when they saw him. They gathered in worship, but it didn't end there. His followers didn't just have one more enriching time of worship with Jesus to build themselves up, you know, to encourage them to keep on keeping on in their faith. Jesus then said to them these famous and often neglected words. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. They worshipped and they were sent. So here's the question. How much effort do we put into gathering for worship to be enriched in our own faith compared to the effort we put into being sent by Jesus to make disciples? And how much is our worship focused on what we get out of it compared to how much we look to nurture new disciples of Jesus Christ? Through the vision God is inspiring here in Christchurch, he's enabling us to rediscover our part in his mission. We have numerous expressions of church developing to help other people discover faith in Jesus Christ. And others more will spring up over time. Do we see them as a priority worth putting all our effort into because of Jesus' commission, his words, go and make disciples? Or is our own worship still the overriding priority? How much do we show an active interest in these expressions of church? For example, Soul Space, which is church for young people meeting on a Thursday night. And it's been going, golly, about eight months now. And young people are coming to faith in Jesus. In a couple of weeks, some of the young people who are members of that church community will be baptized and confirmed by the bishop. They are experiencing the love of Jesus. These are people, young people, who had no connection with church. And they want to respond to Jesus. Could it be that God is calling you to make disciples there? Is God wanting to send you to make disciples at Messy Church Extra, which starts on the 23rd of March? Messy Church Extra is being set up to make disciples of Jesus. Or how about supporting Libby? Libby Wayne, with Outlook for the over 55s. Libby's heart is to see people grow in faith and experience the love of Jesus in their lives. Could you play a part and help make disciples there? And is God sending you to your family or place of work or college or school or neighborhood to make disciples of Jesus? Is he asking you to get together to, with one or two others so that you can encourage one another you can share joys and struggles and pray for one another to have the courage to be sent by God and play your part in his mission. That's why this Life on the Frontline course and Sunday sermon series is so important. It will encourage us in our role of making disciples. There's so many possibilities. Where is God sending you? So to finish... Will we forget God by expecting too much of others and our leaders? Or will we look to God as our true king by depending on him and taking responsibility for our relationship with him and all that he expects of us? And will we forget the calling God has given us to take ground and bring freedom? Or through God's vision, will we rediscover our part in his mission of love? 
by allowing him to send us to make disciples in our expressions of church and any new ones that God will inspire us to begin and also in every part of our lives. Our vision is summed up with this wonderful statement, loving God, living his adventure. Gideon's story challenges us to keep on keeping on. The adventure is not easy. We don't know what will happen or the detailed shape of things to come. This is uncharted territory and it can be messy, it can be unsettling and it can be foggy. Rediscovering our part in God's mission requires a great deal of change, not least in the way that we understand church. Through our vision we have glimmers of what will be, but the reality really is a constantly unfolding surprise, believe me. So as we journey on, be encouraged to look to our Deliverer and King as he sends us to make disciples, to take ground and bring freedom. Before Duncan leads us in our prayers, I want to share with you to finish a prophecy that was shared originally in October time, at weekly morning prayer or after that, and then it was again shared with me recently and I thought it was appropriate considering what we've just explored together. In a Tuesday prayer meeting last year, one of our church members sent the Lord was saying that he saw the faithful people of Christ Church as jewels sparkling and multicolored in a treasure chest. God said to us, now is the time to not let those jewels become dusty and that where they are already to dust yourself off and begin to sparkle again. Where there is tiredness, cynicism, disillusionment, and sometimes where there hasn't been much life at all, stir yourself, lift up your eyes, lift up your head and your heart to me. There are growing embers among you that I will fan into flames so that the fire will spread among you. I will blow the breath of my spirit over you and cause the embers to burst into flame. Eat, sleep, speak, sing my word. It is life for you. I have such plans for you greater than you can imagine, that go beyond the roof of this building, that extend up to the heavens. But I want you to turn to me. Under the power of the Holy Spirit, I want the jewels to jump out of the chest and sparkle all around. See, I'm doing a new thing. And yes, that will feel unfamiliar. But am I not a good God? Am I not the God who loves you with all my heart? Am I not the God who only wants good things for his children? to take delight in them, and for them to take delight in me. Amen. Let's pray.